So I actually um, bought the game and committed to running it on uh, someday this weekend, this past weekend, without actually having read the rules. Well, pop yourself a beer or a cold libation. I can tell you how I wrote this little thing. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start off with some talking and some movie clips of popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations, and some groundless exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the dogs come on, contest, and of course you know it's all about games. That's the slowdown, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG Variety Welcome to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. Today, I've got listener calls, and I have a special interview with somebody that's recently returned back to the hobby and jumped in with both feet. So let's get into the show. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's screaming is coming from inside the house. Our first caller is Joe Salvador of Raven Guy Games, and he's calling about the session recap I did for Reaver, his soon-to-be-published Sword and Sorcery RPG. Hi, Jason. It's Joe. Uh, just wanted to give you a shout and say thanks for doing the recap uh, for our Reaver game. Um, yeah, I had a great time. Uh, you guys all did, you know, fantastic job role-playing and, you know, just making, uh, making a story happen, um, off of the scant preparation I did. Um, yeah, so that's, that, that always works out uh, when, when I do a little bit and you guys do a lot. (laughs) Uh, yeah, anyway, man, thanks again, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Joe is being entirely too modest. He had a very detailed world built, the the city and the background, the NPCs. It, it was lush, interesting, entertaining, like you say, very detailed. And I'm very much looking forward to our next session where the city's about to be under siege. There's mobs in the streets, buildings are burning, and it looks like we're going to go to the jail to try to free my friend before we escape the city. It should be an interesting session. Okay, our next caller, oh, our producer just told me that it's time for me to play a quick ad. Do you want to experience a different kind of role-playing? Do you want to attend the newest, most exciting convention on the role-playing scene? Then you want to come to RichterCon 2020X the newest and soon-to-be greatest RPG convention, RichterCon. Experience the host of Hindsightless running games for you personally, running games like Apocalypse World, the full, unedited version of Apocalypse World, that is, not that kitty version with the sex moves cut out. Monster Hearts, you name it. If you want to play a sexy RPG, RichterCon's the place to be. And if you buy your tickets now then Joe can afford to eat lunch. So get out there, buy those tickets, 
so he can keep paying me advertising dollars. RichterCon 2020X. Be there or be square. And now, a warm round of applause for our next caller, the wonderful, the generous Joe Richter of Heinz Labels. Yo, dude, not that Arlen needs me to defend him, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> so you're sort of misconstruing what he was saying. What Arlen said was that tactics is based off of making decisions based on limited information. Not that every player would know every ability of every monster every time. No, no. Just that in order to use tactics, you have to have some information. Uh, I also want to push back a little bit against the idea that not knowing raises the stakes. I think knowing raises the stakes because if you don't know that constitution loss is on the table, you don't know to be scared that constitution loss is on the table. Uh, Yeah. Anyway, I think for me, knowing makes things way more tense, way more scary and sometimes more fun. Anyway, man, check out the next episode of my podcast because this discussion inspired it. Peace out. Thank you so much for the call, Joe, and for the advertising dollars. As far as the call, you know, maybe I misrepresented things a little bit because I really think we're not far apart on this. And in fact, I think our ideas work in tandem, not in opposition. So the first thing it's important to know is the world we're playing in. It's astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers Hyboria. It's a sword and sorcery world, a human-centric world. And our characters are exploring this island that's just popped out of the mist And we're maybe the first people on this island going to certain areas of this island, you know, in thousands of years. And the things we're encountering are unknowns. They're not things that our characters would necessarily have encountered or even heard about before. So I think that's important. I think the idea that you need to have some knowledge to create tactics is is accurate to a certain degree, but... I think lack of knowledge also informs your tactics. So if you lack knowledge, all you can do is just look at outward appearances and base your tactics off that. You're you're hopefully still going to include some tactics in what you're doing, whether it's playing very defensively until you can assess how strong they are or overly aggressively because you're you you feel you know they're no match for you. But which you shouldn't do because you shouldn't underestimate your foes, but I, I think even a lack of knowledge does inform tactics, to be honest. As far as the idea that knowing is more of a pucker factor than not knowing, yes and no. I think not knowing and then learning helps ratchet that pucker factor up. So let's take the undead ape man that we encountered as a good example. So this creature had the ability to not only attack us physically, but it could also life drain. It could also, you know, suck out points of our constitution. We did not know it had this ability to drain constitution when we engaged it. We thought it was just like a zombie. So initially, maybe we're a little bit overconfident, but as soon as it sucked constitution away from my character, now that's when the pucker factor goes up because now we know it has that ability and now it plays into your call that now we have to fight it knowing it has this, this really deadly ability. But I think not knowing originally and when that ability is first used, that really ratchets that up 
further than if we had known the whole time. Same thing with the Wraith. So with the Wraith, we didn't know what rules Arlen was using for the Wraith. We didn't know what kind of Wraith it was. We did use some tactics because we played on what we knew, what we thought we knew about Wraiths, which luckily was pretty accurate. But it didn't have to be. We assumed it wouldn't come into the sunlight, and we assumed fire would hurt it. And both of those things turned out to be true, but it might not have been true. And it could have been it where it came right out of the cave and attacked us. And in fact, some of the characters were ready to run if it did breach the mouth of the cave. And we were ready in case the fire didn't work, probably just to run. So not knowing did affect our tactics, but we, you know, again, they were imperfect tactics and imperfect knowledge until our actions verified what we thought. So I think that not knowing isn't a bad thing. And I don't think that the lack of knowledge of that character's abilities makes it any less scary. And I, I think having abilities revealed mid-encounter can ratchet that pucker factor up beyond where it would have been if you knew its abilities the entire time. And kind of to follow up with that idea, we have a call from Che Webster of the excellent Roleplay Rescue podcast. So I'm going to turn it over to Che. Hey, Jason, it's Che. Just wanted to congratulate you on 250th episode-ish. Um, but I also just wanted to, you summoned me. You, you mentioned my name in the Ash game. Um, and I just wanted to back you up and say, yeah, I think not knowing the stats of the creatures, not knowing actually the rules of the game really does heighten the excitement for me too. Um, I feel very much actually that I've been actually going out of my way to not learn the rules of Ash, and it's really interesting because it's almost impossible with a group of players who keep referring to the rules and who kind of expect me to know the rules. Um, but I've been stubbornly refusing to learn them, uh, mostly because I wanted to see if I can get away with and function well without the rules. And you know what? It's harder than you think, but I am glad I'm trying. And I, like you, the pucker factor was up with those wraiths and uh, that um, dead eight man. Game on, man. Yo, Jason, me again. So as far as if I would be offended by Arlen saying that there are video game type aspects to Pathfinder, no, nah, man, that's not an untrue statement, really, you know? And then you were you were wondering if I would prefer uh, a board game analogy to a video game analogy. And yeah, I, I guess, but in my mind, they're basically the same thing. I look at video games as just fancy board games. Um, and yeah, that, that aspect... The board gamey slash video gamey aspect of Pathfinder is just one of the things I love about Pathfinder. Not the only thing. But anyway, dude, this was <laughs> your 250th question mark episode was amazing, dude. It was bonkers. I loved it. And yeah, I'd like to say thank you to Arlen. He inadvertently inspired uh, my next my next podcast episode. So thanks, Arlen. Peace out. Thank you, Che and Joe, for congratulating me on getting as far as I have in the podcasting arena. I really appreciate that. Um, che, I hear what you're saying about not knowing the rules. It's kind of like when you're watching a, a wonderful sport like curling on the Olympics and you don't really know the rules, but you're kind of scared to look them up because you know if you know all the rules, it'll take some of the mystery and, and excitement out of the, watching the match. So that may not be the analogy that, that Che would pick on his own. 
but, but, but I'm confident it's pretty accurate. Joe, I think you bring up a great point with the board games and with, and I think there's a interesting thing going on there with RPGs that have a more tactical miniatures oriented board game or video game-ish combat system because it really mixes the two hobbies. If you're playing a board game, even a like a dungeon crawl board game or a board game that tries to be an RPG or an RPG light, if you start talking in voices and really playing up, role-playing your character, your piece in a board game, the other player is going to look at you like you grew a second or third head. Where in an RPG, if you're playing 4th edition D&D, you're playing Pathfinder, or you're playing any of these other great RPGs that have really crunchy combat, you can scratch both itches at the same time. When you're not in combat, and even when you're in combat, like we've discussed over on Joe's show, you can still role play, but they're not mutually exclusive things. But in addition to scratching that role play itch when you're doing all those social interactions, when you're doing the combats, you're scratching that board game itch. So I do think that's why some of these games appeal to some people more than others. On your second point, Joe, as far as Arlen inspiring your latest episode, your latest episode is now out. I will include a link in the show notes. It's an interesting episode. And I have left you many calls in response to it. So with that said, let's go to our next caller. Hey, Jason, it's Brian. I just started listening to your uh, 250 and wanted to send you a note. You don't have to publish it. I don't mind if you do. But yeah, I just want to thank you for a little brief moment of silence and remembrance. I actually started to uh, record last week just some thoughts on the anniversary and yeah, again, not to, I mean, obviously it's something that has affected, you know, just about everybody in one way or another. And it's a little bit of, um, it, it is hard to put into words. And I just remember from, you know, being in the Navy and watching unfold and being part of the response. And then, like you said, just, yeah, God, over these 20 years, all the, you know, friends that have been over there and, you know, friends we've lost. So, but yeah, just, just thanks for that. And uh, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's, it's a tough thing. And I'm, I'm kind of glad we're, we're through that, that milestone anyway. Cheers. I don't think there's anything really to add to that comment. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate the com- kind words. And yeah, that's Brian from the Have to Look That Up podcast. Check it out, folks. Hey, Jason, Paul here. Uh, Arlen's uh, recent call in on sort of the social effects of wearing armor as you go into a village uh, brought back to mind an experience I had a number of years back while attending a Society for Creative Anachronism event. Uh, probably our recent discussion brought that to mind as well. But um, so I you know, was just hanging out at an event. Everybody's around dressed in medieval or Renaissance garb and just clanking and stomping by me, you know, paying no attention to me, was this immense guy wearing full plate armor. And, you know, that is really damned intimidating. So, you know, like a foot taller than me, uh, there I am in my doublet and hose. And, you know, you get the, the real feeling that there is nothing you, as an unarmored person, can do to this monstrosity. So... So, yeah, uh, so, so definitely, you know, sort of bringing real world uh, 
experience into into your games is a is a really interesting thing. Paul, thank you so much for that call. That's a great point. I think sometimes when we're playing our characters, we, we don't take fear into account. We don't take uh, intimidation factors into account. So they're, they're as likely to, to stand and back talk to a 20-foot giant as they are to a three-foot hobbit. And, and the idea that, you know, a, a big person in armor is intimidating, I, I think, isn't played up nearly enough in games. Although there are some games that, that allow for things like that. Uh, but but most, and especially your, your standard, you know, fantasy games, high fantasy games, don't really play up that trope at all. If you're interested to hear more about what Paul thinks, or you want to hear the conversation he referenced with me, then stay tuned to the end of the podcast. Hey, Jason, I actually have a set of ubiquity dice for my all-for-one eight regime diabolique that was put out by i can't remember who but they originally was ubiquity system however i also have the savage worlds version so it's a historical game that i know you hate but magic is real and uh, regime diabolique means diabolique i don't know my french where you put the emphasis but um it's like uh you know demons and devils and magic uh, during the age of the Three Musketeers, so the reign of Louis the Thirteenth-ish, Thirteenth, maybe Fourteenth, depending on how far you go. So, um, yeah, I got some ubiquity dice. All for One Regime Diablo Week is published by Triple Ace Games. Hey, I want to tell your listeners that you have good taste because you recommended Mare of east town and we binged it the other night uh, amy and i and we really liked it hopefully there'll be a season two i think you could do multiple seasons with cop dramas right i did like it it was a little it was different it was more personal right but it was still a cop drama in a small town which i kind of liked and uh it's a, a takes place outside of philadelphia and i kind of know the area i think i have a friend of mine a colleague a friend of mine who is a professor at haverford which is hilarious. Um, anyway, so good stuff. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for the recommendation. So all you people hearing about Cobra Kai, you should go watch it because it's really good too. Carl, I appreciate that. Cobra Kai, of course, is an easy recommend. It's a little bit more lighthearted. Most people have seen Karate Kid. Um, Cobra Kai is, is a solid recommend, I think, for almost everybody. Mayor of Easttown, and it's M-A-R-E, you know, like a female horse, is... A harder recommend because, yes, it's a cop drama. Yes, it's a murder mystery. And, yes, it's very well acted. Kate Winslet does a great job. In fact, pretty much everybody does a great job. But the storyline is pretty depressing. And there's not a whole lot of light in the series. So so you're going into it knowing it's going to be pretty depressing. If you're okay with that, it's very well acted, very well done. But just know it's kind of a dark storyline. So it's a little hard to recommend for that reason because a lot of people just want to escape and and laugh and, you know, kind of more happy things. And while there are downer notes in Cobra Kai, Cobra Kai is a lot more highs and and lighthearted moments than Mayor of Easttown does. The big draw to Mayor of Easttown to me is where it was filmed. 
So I spent my you know middle school, high school years living in Delaware County in Pennsylvania and have family and friends, you, you know, Paoli, Chester, Westchester, media, you know, through that area. And, and I was familiar with the area where it was all filmed. It's kind of my old stomping grounds to some degree. So that was the big draw of that show for me. And now we're going to switch gears and go back to Joe Richter, who's going to give us a preview of our next episode. Yo, Jason, it's Joe. So I'm just sitting in my local Greasy Spoon, getting ready to get something delicious to eat, maybe a Reuben this morning. Uh, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of breakfast food. But anyway, man, I'm really excited for our second meeting to finish putting together my cyberpunk character. And speaking of cyberpunk, I thought it was hilarious and also very ironic that Daniel called up talking about how he wasn't punk and in the same message mentioned how he illegally downloaded a file. That's like the definition of cyberpunk. Peace out. Okay, just a bit more on punk. Yeah, it is absolutely super cyberpunk to illegally download a file that rules Daniel nice. But as opposed to metal... I would say, and this would piss off some of my true, some of my friends who claim to be like true punks, real punks, and I would be hard pressed to argue they lead a very punk rock lifestyle, which me saying that will sort of sound weird with what I'm about to say, but I don't think there is a true punk aesthetic the way there more or less is with a metal aesthetic. I think punk is much more. A state of mind. That's why the term so often and incorrectly just gets attached to other words to say it's a thing like steampunk. There's nothing punk about steampunk. Peace out. Hell yeah, Chumba, you're right. There is nothing punk about steampunk, and I agree with you. I don't even get that connotation. I see why cyberpunk gets it, especially cyberpunk 2020 and those kind of things, but I never, yeah, I never got it from steampunk. I, I never understood that. If somebody can explain why steampunk is punk, please call in and educate us. But I said this was a preview of the next episode. Why is that? Because next episode is all Daniel Norton all the time. Daniel left me a bunch of calls, and I'm going to dedicate a whole episode to Daniel's calls. That concludes our calls. Now we're going to switch gears, and I'm going to take a page out of Che Webster's book. Che Webster has the amazing Role Play Rescue podcast. There's a link in the show notes. I highly recommend you go check that out. He has interviewed a bunch of influential and important people, and he does a great job interviewing. My interviewing technique is far inferior to Che's, but I'm going to try a little bit here because I'm going to interview somebody that's come back into the hobby. After this interview, we're just going to play the outro song and that'll be the end of the episode. So before I launch into the interview, I want to thank Ray Otis for the coffee cup clip art, TJ Drennan for the wonderful music. I want to thank all my callers for providing me fodder for the show. I want to thank my special guest who I'm going to interview because he took the time out of his day to join me and talk about his situation. And in addition, I want to thank you, the listeners. Because, well, I really appreciate your taking time out to listen to the show. If you want to contribute, if you want to get involved in the conversations, you can leave me a message on the Anchor app. You can send an email to nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. 
If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air and make you famous. Or I can just read your email on the air. You can find me on a ton of different discords. And if you send me a message on there, I can read that. Or send me an audio file on Discord, I can play that. So there's a bunch of ways to get involved. And you know what? If you just want to listen to the podcast, that's okay too. Okay, let's get into our interview. I have a special treat for you guys today. I'm going to nudge a little bit into Che Webster territory, and I'm going to talk to a gamer that's returned to the hobby after a hiatus. Joining me today is Paul. How are you doing, Paul? Uh, doing great. Thanks uh, for inviting me on the show, Jason. I, thank you very much for joining me and, and accepting the invitation. You've kind of taken the anchor world and the Discord world by storm lately. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely uh, sort of a high impact week for gaming here after a, a long time of no gaming at all. And we're talking uh, probably uh, somewhere between 15 and 18 years. I haven't done the actual math, but that's sort of the ballpark. Well, that, that's a that's a pretty good break. I had about a decade break, mm. so, so not quite as long as yours. So if you don't mind, what tell us a little bit about your gaming background. Yeah, so so I remember the first uh, time I saw a role-playing game book was in third grade. This would have been probably like 1980 or so. And uh, somebody brought in a copy of the AD&D Monster Manual. They didn't have any of the other books, but that was it. So, so then it was the Moldvay BX that I played for the, like the next three, four years after that. And this was like height of satanic panic stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, it uh, after some vague enthusiasm from my mother, uh, it, it rapidly changed tone. So I had to shift to uh, doing things on the on the down low. But I nonetheless ended up purchasing a lot of stuff that was obviously not D and D, such as GURPS and so on. I uh, was a big frequenter of my my downtown downtown gaming shop. So a lot of uh, stuff uh, game through college. Uh, you know the usual, you know, all day sessions. You know, it's a weekend. Let's get the get the the beer or the uh, or the root beer, depending on what people are in the mood for, and just spend the entire weekend in a classroom somewhere. Which what games were you playing back then? So played a lot, but the the two that were sort of the backbones were GURPS and D and D. So I sort of would ran a lot of one off GURPS stuff, and then D and D first edition, and then moving moving into second edition uh, for sort of the group I played with a lot. And uh, you know we had other stuff, BattleTech, um, yeah, by uh, uh, Call of Cthulhu, other stuff. But definitely uh, the the other two were sort of uh, the basics. I mean I loved GURPS just because it had because of the supplements, right? I almost loved reading it more than playing it. And after college, it the hobby for me became a lot more about reading than playing. Uh, so, you know, that period through the 90s there, you know, before the Internet, you know, I moved out from the Midwest to the East Coast and, uh, you know, did not manage to make contact with any gamers. Uh, you know, I dropped into the local gaming shop uh, a few years after I moved out here, and there was a flyer up for an anime club, and anime was one of the things I had gotten interested in at the time. So I ended up joining the anime club. So if there had been a, a different uh, a different flyer at the time, it probably would have been a different course because I spent a lot of time doing that, uh, doing some conventions, and current and like spent the last uh, I guess eleven years on an anime podcast. So. Very cool. 
Yeah. In fact, here at the end of the podcast, we'll, we'll go ahead and plug that for you. But yeah. so you had this. So what brought you back into the hobby? So so actually, it, it's almost what drove me away from the hobby. That's that's sort of the interesting thing. So this would have been like 2000. I, mean, I guess it was probably 2005 uh, was the last time I tried to play. So I went back to that same gaming store. There was a group up that had uh, a D&D 3.5 game going and uh so i tried to join up they were starting up it was a big group it was like eight people a lot of them knew each other they were all deeply sunk into three five you know i was still my head was back in in 2e and 3.5 they had all the supplements so this was two years after i'd started grad school while working full-time and i'm like boy you know i want to do stuff and I, you know i've been doing so it's like doing a society for creative anachronism uh-huh. a bunch of doing a bunch of local computer user groups and you know, just piling all this stuff into my life but there wasn't gaming i'm like sure i can fit this in too so it was like this eight hour session of just like creating characters and just figuring it out so i came up with a character that i actually liked like so it was this uh you know dwarven dwarven ranger you know it was forgotten realm so i'm like okay gold dwarf that's cool you know they're you know not not underground uh ranger give them a couple dogs so next week we came back and played again uh so again everybody gets around the table DM uh, you know, starts up the session uh, outside the town and nobody in the party wants to go in the town. I mean, you know, it's sort of that that classic moment. And, you know, I, so so and he was clearly upset, had no way to deal with this. So like I and one other person who was like playing the, the, the other essential character, the chaotic neutral mage who just wants to cause trouble. We waited. Okay. Anyway, we end up uh, out, first battle is goblins. Uh, everybody fails their spot checks. Goblins ambush us, us. Both my dogs are killed, invalidating the character concept. And it took, again, like uh, like se- seven or eight hours for this session. And, you know, at that point, I knew this was just not going to work. Uh-huh. And so at that point, I just kind of gave up uh, the gaming for a while. As I And as grad school progressed, uh, you know, I just gave up on more and more stuff because that's the way it works. And once I jumped into the PhD program, that sort of squeezes out every bit of uh, space and joy in your life till nothing remains. Interesting. So you, you found back into gaming. If you, we're going to diverge a little bit for a second yeah. here to, to the SCA. I, oh, yeah. I, I actually was a little bit involved in the SCA in the mid-90s when yeah. I was at Washington State. But then when I moved out, while well, I got stationed out of Fort or, or Fort Bragg in, in the late '90s, I I didn't pick it back up. I never, you know, rehooked up with another group or any, or you know, rehooked up with the kingdom down there. But so is that something you've continued to do, or is that something that also got kind of left by the wayside? Yeah, that that fell away as well. So I was doing a lot. So I I didn't do a lot of like the setting up events and the social stuff, but I did a lot of like the arts and sciences sort of things, uh-huh. like the brewing, uh, you know, mead brewing. Uh, did the archery. Uh, I love SCA fencing, um, right. which which I'd love to get back to. Fencing in the round, um, uh-huh. you know, heavier heavier weapons than uh, than your standard uh, APE if you've if you've got the right and you do use schlager, uh-huh. um, you know, use bucklers, offhand weapons, you know, really fun stuff. Uh, but again, you know, just way too far to drive. And the other main thing I did was uh, bardic circle stuff. So we had a, okay. an awesome bardic circle. Uh, that did like music for the dance practices and occasional uh-huh. events. So picked up the recorder, played that for a while. Very cool. 
Okay. But but yeah, so but it's time. You know, this is a you know a suburban area, and the the local uh, shire covers two counties. So you know, it's a long haul, and it, the time just kept adding up. Right. So. No, I totally understand that. So you're back into gaming. You yeah. you 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 burst on the scene. You're you're <laughs> you, you find Discord. You're giving call-ins to shows. Some great call-ins to shows. Really insightful, like to Chase, Jay Webster's Roleplay Rescue Show. You you've called into my mm-hmm. show, um, and and all of a sudden you started running games. You, you popped up, and these games are very different from the ones you played back in the day from D and D and GURPS. Yeah. So so actually, so back when about the time I. Uh, went away from gaming completely, I was still listening to podcasts. So this was like the first generation of podcasts. Mm-hmm. And so like I, I worked at a place where I could walk in uh, in the park in the during lunch. And so during lunch, I'd like laboriously load uh, these podcasts onto my mobile device, which was not an iPod and listen to them. So this is um, uh, uh, um, Sons of Cryos was one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, Durham Three, actually, Sons of Cryos, uh, Judd Carlman from that is is now doing Daydreaming About Dragons, right. another mm-hmm. excellent podcast. Uh, but so so those were that was the start of uh, I guess that's a few years into the Forge. So the indie gaming scene was really picking up. So I'm hearing about all these just really interesting different games, and so that I, I was always really interested in like checking them out. And so as I, you know, sort of emerged from the, you know, the, the haze of, of grad school, you know, I was still listening to, to podcasts. I started listening to more. The, the first one I picked up was uh, Ken Haidt and Robin Laws, mm-hmm. Can Robin Talk About Stuff, which is uh, uh, just pro- a top tier uh, a top tier show. I mean, just so varied and sort of that. It, the thing I love about gaming is it's everything, right? It's, it's why I went into computers because, you know, you can apply a computer to any problem. So you never actually have to commit to anything, right? So, so, uh, so yeah, so I knew that um, I wanted to give some of these other systems a try for sure. And so, so we're talking things like, um, like, like when I first read Fate, that's a game that like totally changed the way that I thought about what a game could be. I mean, I'd been very skeptical about sort of just the concept of it, but looking at how sort of the aspects seemed to work seemed extremely interesting. And so all the way through, I was also, you know, still buying gaming books, right? So I was just building up this gaming library. I mean, I, for, for me, like a, a, a gaming rule book is the ideal bedtime reading. You know, there's no plot to sort of keep you in. It's all about that possibility. Uh, so, so really what it is, is like three years back, I said, you know, I really would like to get back to gaming, except it is freaking hard to find space in life for that. So I was like trying to get something up at work, but I, you know, I've got an hour commute to work by train mm-hmm. and, you know, it just never managed to spin up. It's like, yes, this is something I want to do, but it's just so damn hard to fit into an adult life. Right. And then, you know, last year, so nonetheless, you know, so I, I'd actually been preparing to run 5e. Because like 5e is a really interesting sort of take on Dungeons and Dragons. Once again, I've been hearing great things about it. I bought it. And, and it's interesting, right? There's still a lot of mechanical heft to the system. There is a, it, it's not a smooth, tight system, but it's much more open than like a 3.5 in a lot of ways. Uh, and so it, it seemed pretty good. You know, I got the basic books. I was sort of 
getting working my way up to running something. And then I found 13th Age. Uh, and that's another one, like I'd heard about it on uh, Ken and Robin talk about stuff, but I, I'd like, I, why would I be interested in that? That sounds terrible. Uh, but for, for some reason, I picked up the core rule book. And once again, there's just so many mechanics in there that are fascinating. And sort of it's that marriage of the system with the kind of uh, sort of story and interaction that's going to emerge from the table that, that's really interesting to me. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, but even then, so, so, you know, then we come up to, to, to COVID days, right. And it's like, oh, this is, you know, I hesitate to say great, but you know, there's so much time suddenly we're going to be able to do, you know, there's, well, no, there's no more commute, you know, clearly it's going to be possible to get back to gaming, except it turns out that being in a global pandemic is somewhat stressful and, uh-huh. uh, you know, so nonetheless, so here we are, what, a year and a half later or something like that. And, you know, we've kind of acclimated to that. Uh, but so so I guess um, like three months back or so, I decided that, you know, okay, I, I need to do something about gaming. I just really want to give this another shot. And so, you know, I, at this point, I'm listening to, you know, like 18 different role-playing podcasts or something like uh-huh. that, I had some of which are defunct and still hitting the feed. So there's probably like 30 total you know, just sitting there. But so what I did is I picked the selection of the podcasts and said, you know what, these people have gotten me through a lot. I want to, you know, just start contributing to their Patreons. And a lot of them also had discords where they say, you know, there's, you know, you know, come talk to other gamers, you know, find a game. So that was kind of the the way I set out to to get back to the table. And, you know, after like a sort of a month of lurking around, I decided to jump into a game. That was actually uh, one of Arlen Walker's games. So it turned out to be a fake game that he was testing out. And, you know, that was great. So that was, I think, back in July, my first game uh, since, you know, since since I'd gotten away from the hobby. Uh-huh. And, you know, after, then it's, you know, I, I've always been the GM, right? I mean, I like playing well enough, but there's, there's, a, there's a real difference in sort of the experience of GMing and the experience of being a player. And... It's that sort of the, the, the balance, the, that sort of being right on the edge of having to keep everything in the air and thinking and just being to- total, having to be totally on point for this period of time and in, in this creative activity. You know, that's uh-huh. what I loved about it back in the day. But even then, like I wasn't really running improvisational stuff back then, right? It was modules. It was, you know, the GURP stuff I was running was mostly modules or stuff that had been planned out pretty closely. Uh, but I didn't go too far off book. I always sort of wanted to, uh, but, you know, just never got there. So so I had uh, a bunch of vacation this year because I'm not traveling anywhere. So, so when Labor Day came up, I said, you know, Okay, I've been, you know, really prepping to run a couple of games. So I've been prepping Fate because I knew that I really wanted to run a Fate game. And I've been prepping 13th Age. Uh, but 13th Age was was pretty heavy and it's a little more traditional. So like that core is very much in that uh, D20 combat style, right? Uh-huh. So um, so I, I said, okay, I'm going to do Fate. I'm actually going to try to run a couple games, but if nothing else, I'll just get Fate to the table. Uh, so like Thursday before you know, start of last week here, I uh, 
posted it up on Che uh, Walker's Discord and a couple of other places, just trying to, to drum up some people. There's a Fate Discord out there that pulled uh-huh. in a couple more. And, you know, that's probably uh, like that leading up to that game is probably three of the most stressful ga- days I've had in quite a long time. Uh, just uh, you know, almost total, not, not panic exactly, but just that, that crushing anxiety, uh, sort of that's the hubris of, you know, how could I have thought I could, you know, expect to other people to put up with this, right? Sure. So, so say, yeah, I, I, I think any of us have gone away from the hobby and especially, you have come back and you have those butterflies in your stomach and you have those yeah. doubts when you're getting ready to run a game for the first time in a long time. Um, I, I know I had when I came back to the hobby, so, so I can definitely relate to that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I did during sort of the late double lots um, was uh, running uh, local computer meetup groups. So at one point I was running four different ones. So there was a lot of sort of emceeing and giving presentations. So I got very familiar with that. But those first two times, it was just crushingly awful. But, you know, it gets better. And eventually, as it becomes more familiar, uh, you know, you you acclimate to it. Uh, So so I figured this week would be sort of a pressure cooker. And I definitely made things harder for myself by picking three extremely different systems to run. Uh, But but they were all pretty light prep systems, right? So the, the one that was probably the highest prep was Fate. Uh, and that was, I, was, I did, did, was doing something that was basically a prepackaged module for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that. That one went off pretty well. I mean, it wasn't great, uh, but by the end, it seemed to, people seemed to enjoy it, actually. It's great. Yeah. So, so yeah, Arlen ran me in my first game back and you played it in my first game back, which was, mm-hmm. which was pretty awesome. So, so, I mean, I'll let you decide if it was okay for you, but at least one of the people said, you know, that they found it very fun. So that's, you know, all we can hope for really from, from a session like this. No, I thought I, I did think it was enjoyable. I, we we there, there's a little bit of clunkly, clunkiness with the rules just because, you know, for for me, it was the first time I've ever played Fate. Mm. I, I've owned it for years, but, sure. you know, I haven't really ever played it. So so I've and and this is the first time any of us have played Fate Accelerated. I think the yep. one player said that she had played a fair bit of Fate with the, the core rules, but not Accelerated. Mm. And they're slightly different. And that was throwing her off a little bit. I think I think we all agreed that. You know, if we came back and played again, it would definitely go smoother. But but she seemed to think that the core rules or which I haven't played that, but maybe the core rules run a little smoother than accelerated. But again, I without playing more than once each, I, I couldn't comment. You know. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot to so so all of us were new, and yeah, definitely there is a lot of friction figuring out a new rule set, mm-hmm. right? So, but nonetheless, you know, as as I think as that session went on, by the end it was. I think that last sequence we ran, sort of the cliffhanger, you know, the the lasers coming down from the ceiling and the and the chamber of the sword actually came off pretty well. So yeah, and, I, I yeah, I, I do too. I think the narrative parts of the game went fine as far as the player interaction, interacting with you, and the story was interesting, and all, mm-hmm. all that went fine. It was just the feeling out of the mechanics, which which is a kind of a reoccurring theme as we get to your third game. Yes, but I'll, I'll let indeed. you continue your story here. No, no. So, so after that, I'm like, okay, well, I've got, so this was like, you know, day three of vacation. I'm off for nine days. Let's, mm-hmm. let's I, I said, okay, what's, let's space this out a little bit. So I said, midweek, let's do Dungeon World. 
Uh, again, a very different game and a game that the, where the rulebook really changed the way that I thought about gaming. So I'd heard about it a lot on podcasts and like that core mechanic where you just roll 2d6, like this very simple die roll, and you've got three relatively straightforward outcomes, and that's it. Right. And, and the, the rest of it seems, well, you're just making stuff up. What's the point? How is this even like proper role playing? Mm -hmm. uh, but the GM advice section of that book is some of the best I've read. So the advice in there on fronts and and just how you how you think about running games, the GM principles. It was an interesting attempt at sort of system systematizing what seems like the approach that many good GMs are already taking. And I really wanted to try to put that into action. So I, over the previous week, I'd also been listening to a bunch of uh, a couple of uh, uh, Powered by the Apocalypse podcasts, I particularly Discern Realities, mm -hmm. uh, now ended, but which has uh, some sort of excellent um, beginner uh, how, how to run dungeon world. And so I, that was sort of a, the prep I did for that. And sure. actually, the about a couple of weeks back, I found a setting called the Cold Ruins of Last Life that I sort of bought on a whim when I was at the, the local gaming store. And it's this sort of very dark, um, sort of dark souls world. You know, everything's dead. The characters are undead. Uh, you know, the world's burning out. But, you know, there's glimmers of hope in the ashes where, you know, or the world might just, you know, wither away and die or be consumed by great beings from outside or whatever. You play to find out. That's the, the dungeon world way. Mm -hmm. And I was really taken by it. I'm like, OK, let's give this a shot. I uh, got uh, three people to sign up. Um, I think you signed up for that, but couldn't quite make it. I, I did. And I had a, ended up yeah, having a yeah, conflict. I couldn't make but, it. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was that was a bummer, but it still worked pretty well. So I was really fortunate in that game because the, the, the two guys who signed up were longtime Dungeon World players and they'd played together. So they had a really good rhythm. Uh, so, you know, I was a little awkward at first, but they really got into the groove of it and really helped uh, sort of show how the game was supposed to go. Uh, but nonetheless, I found that sort of all the podcast listening I'd done, so sort of these principles of how you as the GM just keep turning it back on the players and adding the twists and figuring out, you know, how hard to push at what moments. And you get, it, it, we got a really neat story that emerged from that, not necessarily a, uh, a, in, that um, it was more of the start of the story, I'd say, right? But the way the details sort of came together, everything everybody was contributing into that shared reality worked out pretty well. And again, that one went well enough that they both of the guys said that they would, they wanted me to run a couple more sessions and can we get some more people into it? So that's um, once again, uh, a much better result than, uh, than I expected from sort of these clumsy attempts at you know, just hacking my way through these new systems. Right. And, and then the, the last game you ran was, again, quite different, and that was Feng Shui 2. Yeah, so, and actually, that's one that had been on my list for a long time. So I'm like, okay, so it's like Wednesday here. I've got, you know, I can fit in one more game of vacations. Okay, so, so leading up to that second game, I was only stressed out for basically one day as opposed to three days. So that's an improvement. Uh, so I had 13 Age there, but that's a pretty heavy system. So I was trying to figure out, you know, what can I run that's going to be fairly low prep, uh, but but again, give a very different sort of experience. And I'm like, well, 
Feng Shui too is one that I've been interested in. Uh, it's uh, again sort of one of the the, the early '90s game was uh, a game that showed people the potential of genre emulation in the mm-hmm. system, uh, which is now obviously a very big thing, and some people don't like it one bit. But um, but even the superhero systems at the time were very much a little more simulationist. It's like we're we're going to set up a world where everything makes sense, whereas the the idea of something like Feng Shui too, or, or the original is every, this is an action movie, right? Uh-huh. So things are going to make action movie sense. And the, the way you approach the rules are going to make action movie sense. So I actually um, bought the game and committed to running it on uh, someday this weekend, this past weekend, without actually having read the rules. So uh, I, and uh, I hope that it would come off. You know, worst case, I could have canceled at the last minute. Uh, but I got the the free. Um, so for, there was a 2016 uh, quick start scenario uh-huh. that I picked up, and I said, "Okay, I'll run this. It's got a cut down version of the rules. They're four pages. You know, can run it with that. This is at least it's going to be an interesting way to explore the the rules." And those feng shui rules are pretty interesting. I, mean, I don't, know, don't know that we really want to get deep into them today, uh, given I don't know how long you want to go here, but. Uh, but uh, th- anyway, there's uh, a lot of math in the system is what we found. We, we did. Uh, we, we we can take a few minutes to talk about the rules. There, there yeah. is another topic I, I want to pick up when we're done this. But so feng shui, too, is, is interesting because it wants you to emulate cinematic movies. It wants that cinematic action, your, your Hong Kong action movies, your, your diehards, your all those kind of things. And, and, and I think the intentions there – and mind you, I haven't read all, all the stuff for it. To be honest, I, I did back it on Kickstarter and have everything, and I read the I, – I forget the name of the book now. We were talking about it last night. The um, uh, Blowing Up the Movies. Yeah, Blowing Up the Movies. I, I did read that back like mm-hmm. you back when the Kickstarter yeah. you know, it, it fulfilled you know, when I received the stuff. But I, it, it definitely was clunkier, and it might be if we played again. And Arlen Walker was also in that game, and he mentioned that you know, if we used the Roll20, we were doing everything – you know, real dice and math in our heads. And Arlen thought if we were using roll 20, it might go a little bit smoother, but it, it did. It seemed like, you, you know, you're doing three or four steps for things that could have been a single step. And that seemed to slow it down for me, but I, I'm not sure if you, now that you've added a day to think about it or have a day yeah, to think about so, it. So it's, so it's really interesting. So I don't want to give up on the system yet because I think there's something really interesting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, there was definitely, as, as I said, we were sort of having the post-game debrief yesterday. There's a lot of friction to this system. I mean, that math is constantly rubbing against everything you do. And outside the fights, there is absolutely no support, right? So it, this is basically, yeah, come up with some stuff. You can make a couple, you know, a couple rolls, which is fine. You know, that's the that's what they're aiming for. It makes sense. Um, so I, I I really like uh, so so I actually ended up deviating completely from the planned scenario uh, because I after. I, like I'm, we're talking like four hours before the game, I was reading through the enemy section like, ah, I see how this works in terms of putting things together and how. And so instead of looking at that scenario, then as a series of, you know, carefully balanced things like, oh, OK, we can just drop in these types of enemies in this proportion, roughly modeling this. And uh, I just had the book open to the section of the different enemy types and was able to build some encounters on the fly pretty straightforwardly, responding to, to how the, 
how the uh, the story went. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did find in all all three of the games we played actually was that getting started was damned hard. I mean, just uh, you know, coming up with a strong start to a session is definitely something that's that I'm going to have to work on. And I, I tried it, I tried it with this one, but again, it was still you know just not quite that high impact opening. And then as it goes along, you know, sort of as we moved into that second action sequence, you know, when you guys got on the uh, the golf cart and are driving uh-huh. up the spiral, uh, I think that 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 fight was flowing better. We were all getting sort of a feel for the mechanics. There wasn't a lot of scenery to draw into the fight, but I think at the, it was an interesting mechanical experience, I think, as opposed to a, an interesting role-playing experience. Yeah, I, I think your start was okay. I think part of it was just we were a group that not played together. I mean, we'd, mm. we'd each, I had played with you once and yeah. Arlen played with you once, but, but effectively we're a new group playing a new system and kind of feeling it out. I think if you had, if in a future game we had the exact same start, I think it would definitely with the same group it would flow much better. So, mm. so I don't know that it was really that weak of a start. I mean, we had, it, it took a minute for us to, well, what are your motivations, this and that. But, but I think the start was okay. Like for, like I would have used fate points if I thought about it, but, yeah, but yeah. I didn't, you, you know, when I was trying to use martial arts, cause I was fighting somebody unarmed. So I was, I was playing a, you know, a maverick cop, but I'm not just not going to shoot down an unarmed person. Yeah. So I, you know, but I, I would use fate points because I knew I was out overmatched physically right, right. In, in that fight. But no, I, I think it was okay. But it, yeah, fate's interesting, or not fate, I'm sorry. Feng Shui 2 is interesting. The plus of that session is we all agreed at the end of the session that we would all really like to revisit it. So mm, it definitely yeah. wasn't a failed session by any means because oh, we all not. are interested in the system still. Mm-hmm. No, and I think, and I think, as we were also saying in that debrief, we all got what we wanted out of it. Mm-hmm. I think, I, I mean, I really understand feng shui a lot better, and I also understand about what I need to work on for my gming. So, like, I feel so. So, like, reading books is not the same as actually engaging the activity by a long shot, particularly for something like this. And so, things like session pacing, like, I have no idea looking at a book how long something is actually going to take at the table. And there's just no way to do that aside from from giving it a shot. Right. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a learned thing. And it and it really can vary group to group hmm. because it depends how inquisitive your players are. And it, as you learn that group player, you know, some players definitely want to chase, you know, chase side leads and go into rabbit holes and this and that. And others are, mission, you know, laser focused on the mission. And right. so, yeah, so it can really vary. Yeah, so, so I find that, so over those three games, I'm super comfortable coming up with sort of immediate details and like fleshing out the space and you know, what the characters are and reactions. I'm a, sort of okay on figuring out, okay, we need to move this to the next thing. That started clicking along and I'm really going to have to work on my NPC, sort of how to how to think about NPCs, how to play them. That's clearly going to be my biggest uh, thing to work on as I mm-hmm. you know continue to 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 GM stuff. Well, I I am looking forward to hopefully joining you on that journey to some degree. My gaming schedule is pretty full, but as I can, yeah, you, you know, awesome. join your one shots and your things. I look forward to doing that. I was going to say it's been a lot of fun having you at the table. You know, sort of read as with me as I rediscover this. I've been really fortunate in this to have some uh, really experienced people uh, who have uh, you know 
been interested in what's going on and just having interested people is amazing. And that's one of the things that makes this hobby so cool. I mean, these sort of, it's, it's sort of this indirect social experience where you're sort of playing the table, not the game. Right. And so it's not uh, each player doing their own thing. It's much more about sort of that shared experience. And that's what really interests me. Actually, there's a can I do a little digression here. Yeah, go ahead. There's, no, so go ahead. there's there's a uh, video game called Artemis. Don't know if you've heard of it. So it's a it's a starship bridge simulator or spaceship bridge simulator. So basically, we're talking like Star Trek, uh-huh. and uh, except it's uh, meant to be played in a room, and each person has their own laptop or tablet, and each person in this game has on their screen something which is effectively a control screen for one of the bridge stations on the Enterprise. So you've got, you know, you've got weapons, you've got, uh, you've got helm, you've got communications, uh, you've got engineering, and then you've got the captain. And the captain doesn't necessarily have a, um, doesn't even have a computer necessarily. So there's like Mm -hmm. a main screen that has the view out the front of the ship. Um, You you can call up the scanners. But for the most part, the captain's role is just to sort of coordinate the limited views of the other characters or the other players rather so it's this um the the game itself is pretty simple right so there's not much to any of these stations but they all have these limited views of the world and so uh i had a a group that sort of spun off the my old anime club after it ran down and everybody could just watch anime on the internet but every uh, few weeks we'd get together and play artemis for a while and that provided sort of a a similar sort of role-playing experience Mm-hmm. And and what was clear was uh, so so I did sort of this thing where I before I tried being captain I went around and did all the stations to understand what they did, and then when I finally said okay I'm I'm ready to take the captain's role you know it's it's being able to understand why each of the stations is fun, and what each person needs in order to have fun. Uh, in the game as a whole, and so sort of I, I really just love the balancing aspect of that. And I think that is one of the things that's really calling me back to GMing. It definitely sounds like there's a, a big parallel between that and GMing. And and a big part of GMing, like you say, is w- what I enjoy about GMing, other than the fact that you're engaged the entire session, you don't have downtime really mm-hmm. as a GM, which is good because it keeps you, 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 yeah. you know, keeps you involved. But also presenting those challenges and presenting things to the players and how they react and then be able to play off that but like you say it's you you know knowing what the players are looking for and being able to you you know fulfill what they're looking for in a challenging way and then challenge yourself to like you say improvise to react to that in in an interesting way so it's no jamming is definitely a it's definitely more of an art than a science right it's yeah so i so so i'm sort of thinking of it at the moment as as playing everybody else's fun Uh Right. So that is to say, you can't make somebody else have fun. They have to have that fun themselves. You're not that you as the GM. Nope. You're not responsible for their fun, but you can facilitate it and you can sort of react in ways that sort of coordinate everybody's fun together. And that's fun. Right. So so that's the sort of total experience. No, I agree with that. And that kind of where I I don't want to go too in depth with this. This it's a Mm -hmm. little bit of a another digression and we could spend an hour talking about this topic, which I really don't want to do, but I I do, but not today. But one thing that you've done in all the games I played with you 
is incorporate safety tools. And safety mm-hmm. tools can be a hot button topic depending who you talk to and what podcast you listen to and what forum you look at. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, what talking about the safety tools at the beginning of the games didn't affect, didn't cause any derailments or problems in the games. And after using them and playing in those games, I think the big advantage of talking about them up front is they're fresh in everybody's minds on what those limits are. Oh yeah. We, we know that we don't want to talk about, you, you know, harm to household pets. Right. Yeah. For example. And and once you've got that in your, it, you know, we've talked about it at the beginning of the session. So because it's fresh in your mind, I, I think people just are going to automatically avoid those. So yeah, the possibility if you need to pull up an X card or need to do something, you can, but, but I think just discussing it ahead of time, alleviate, alleviates those problems because for the most part, we're all mature adults and we're respectful to each other. So we're going to automatically avoid those. And it doesn't hinder your fun or hinder what your options are in the game, really. It, it just allows, it, because you know where the signposts are, you can be creative and work around them and, you know, yeah, go forward. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and these were five minute discussions most right. of the time. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, okay, here's the list. Anything, anything else? Okay. If it's something goes, if we think something's going bad during the session, here's a couple ways to deal with it. Um, you can always step away. And that's basically it. I mean, so, so, I mean, looking back at sort of just the utter dysfunction of so many gaming groups, you can see why, why the people started formalizing these mm-hmm. tools. So there's a, a list uh, called the five geek social fallacies. Uh, out there, which is sort of, um, there are things like, you know, you never ostracize anybody, you know, friends always do everything together. And sort of, it's this constellation of, of uh, beliefs that sort of uh, awkward introverts tend to adopt, you know, because if you've been ostracized, you don't want, you certainly don't want to push anybody else out of the group and things like that. And sort of being able to move past that and say, you know what, we, it's okay to have a limit, right? It's okay to actually talk to somebody and say, I don't like this. Uh-huh. And so I think safety tools are basically just a way of saying upfront, you know, if there's something you that you're not necessarily feeling comfortable about saying, you know, there is no charge to doing it, right? Everybody's going to be cool with that because by putting these, all we're saying by putting these safety tools out here is that we're not assholes, right? And if you need something, the rest, uh, the rest of us are going to try to accommodate that. So a hundred percent. And, and I think that the big advantage here, especially when you're playing with people you haven't played with before, because in that fake game, that was the first time I played with you know, you or either of the two other yeah. players. So as opposed to walking on eggshells, yeah, you know, this helps you alleviate that as well because you're not as worried about, oh, what if I go too far? Oh, what if the, because you've already talked ahead of time what those limits are. That's not saying you're, you know, wide open to, sure. like you say, be an asshole, but for the, but I think that actually helps you as a player kind of knowing that instead of having to kind of feel it out tentatively th- throughout the session. Yeah, and particularly when you've got no video, there's no way to get any real feedback from how people are taking things. Right. Uh, you know, making it explicit is, I think, great. Now, one of the other interesting things uh, I've I've read I've read and heard a lot about safety tools is from people who actually use them because they want to push their games close to the edge. 
Right. So let's say that you're playing a horror game or, you know, a relationship game and there's something that you find, you know, pretty emotional potentially uh-huh. or scary, but you're in it for that emotional experience, right? You want to push it close to the edge and maybe you don't actually know what your own limits are, right? So it's a way to say, okay, let's do this. But if it gets too much, we have a way to say, okay, let's just take a step back. So it, it's not, it, so a safety tool doesn't mean you're playing soft, right? The point of a safety tool is to let you play hard uh, in a way that everybody's going to enjoy. Right. And I, I think it's really just a matter of attitude. If you normalize it, and obviously, you know, th- th- I haven't played with them before, but it was a perfectly natural way given how much i've heard about them to just say okay we'll add this to the game and Mm -hmm. yeah i think as as a game master it added to my comfort just knowing that uh you know everybody's on the same page and also as a game master one of the you have a a little bit of an extra responsibility to kind of you know control the table if something goes wrong and what the safety tool out there on the table says, you know, this, these are expectations. These are the social expectations you are agreeing to by playing. And so then if something, and the hopefully unlikely uh, event that something has to be done, you know, there's already that framework there, right? And everybody at the table can feel that we've bought into this. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. And I've never been against safety, the idea of safety tools, mm-hmm. and especially for new groups or for conventions or meeting new yeah. people. I don't think they're out of place even with established groups, but but I do think once you've played with, if you have a home group that you've played with for the past couple of years, you've probably already felt out a lot of these things. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? But yeah, there's no, there's no harm in them. And, and that's what I find funny with, with people. Oh, well, they're going to ruin my fun. Well, mm. how? <laughs> yeah. not, you know, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I think it's more just pe- people being contrary to be for the purpose of being contrary. But. Yeah, and it also is the toughness thing, right? I mean, you know, I you know playing. With, you just never know where somebody's head's at, right? I mean, everybody's got their own their own shit, and you can be as tough as possible and have gone through some real unpleasant stuff that can crop mm-hmm. up in un- at unexpected moments. So sure. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate your, your discussing that with me. I appreciate yeah. your coming on the show. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I, and I, like I say, I hope to game with you here in the future. I've had a lot of fun. The two games we were able to play together. Awesome. Is, is there anything in addition you'd like to plug? Yeah. So, um, so I mentioned, uh, the, uh, anime podcast I'm on. So I think, uh, so it was a, it's, so this show has been around for a long time. I jumped in uh, like sometime around the mid 200 episodes of it back in 2010. So I think we're up to episode 849 is going to be coming out next Wednesday. Wow. So, yeah. So um, it's the Otaku Generation podcast at otakugeneration.net. So I am not the backbone of this podcast. I am just one of the participants. So... Uh, so I'm, I'm usually on it, not always, but we cover a lot of sort of general geek stuff and uh, not so much gaming, which is why I haven't plugged it much in the community here. There's not much role-playing related content, um, but but yeah, so usually, you know, general chatter and dig into some anime, either current uh, or, you know, from the depths of history. 
Well, excellent. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes, folks. So don't worry if you can't spell it. It's okay. And uh, and coming up in October, we always, uh, every new season, we try to watch every uh, first episode of every new show that comes out and discuss them. So, so those uh, sort of turn of the season shows are always good ones to jump in on if you're looking for something new to watch. Excellent. Well, again, Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Don't be a stranger. Sure. And, Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Maybe it's your auntie or a joke about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head and Question left is if I fail to shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. I want some more, bring on the gold. Well, your butcher is a dustman and your moil is quite a tipper, and I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper. Don't look away.